All right, James chapter 1, verse 1. I, I told you we were going backwards. So 4, 1, we're going to that very beginning of the book now. Uh, verses 1 through 12 is kind of what I want to look at. We, we don't have time to walk through every single verse in here. So I have a couple of thoughts that I want to bring out of these passages, these verses here, to talk to you about in closing. So this weekend, we started out with our life as a vapor. We've got a plan with God, a real appeal to accept Christ as Savior. If you're not 100% sure you have accepted Christ as Savior, and there may be some of you here, you're still dealing with that issue. I'll, I'll touch on that again in this message. But then the second message, really, for, for those of us just struggling with our sin, we know we've got sin issues. We want to deal with them. We want to get them right. That inner temptation, that inner flesh that we deal with, that prohibits us from running hard and fast after Christ. This last message, I want to talk to you a little bit. For those of you that may be doubting still, may not be 100% sure, but really I want to I want to hit this passage, and what this passage talks about is, is being steadfast in the ESV, having perseverance, if you're using a different translation. I want to talk about the fact that if you truly believe in Christ and you've been saved, you're going to deal with the inner temptations. You start dealing with those inner temptations, the devil's not going to like it. And there are going to be trials that come at you from outward. Not, not the inner temptation we talked about earlier this morning, but outward trials, outward things that happen as life just happens to all of us. Things that happen because we live in a fallen world, and this text deals with a lot of that as it talks about being steadfast. And so I want to read to you just those 12 verses, and then we're going to pick up on a few things. So would you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, James chapter 1. I want to read verses 1 through 12. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. For if any of you lacks in wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass, its flowers fall, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Dear Lord, I pray that you would help us as we consider these passages to commit even today to be steadfast. To commit, Lord, not to be double-minded or double-souled, but, Lord, to be unified in our pursuit of you, steadfast in our faith, for whatever trying times may come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So our text starts off here, James. Who is James? James is the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus, fully God, fully man. The Holy Spirit visits upon Mary so that God the Father is 
the father of Jesus, Mary is the mother of Jesus, even from conception, fully God, fully man together, and what we call the immaculate conception, the virgin birth. Mary has Jesus, then Mary and Joseph later on have additional children. Of those additional children, James is listed. If you look at all of the listings in the New Testament of Jesus' brothers, James is typically listed first, typically meaning that James is the older brother of all of the other siblings. And so the, the perception is, even though it may not be, be proven beyond any doubt, that James is the older brother of all the other siblings, half-brother of Jesus. Can you imagine being James? Can you imagine growing up in a house with Jesus? Now, this is a little bit anachronistic because they didn't have things that I'm going to describe. But just to put it in our context, how many of you have an older brother? Can, can you imagine that if your older brother were Jesus, what would life be like? I mean, your mom comes to you. Hey, can't you, can't you, can't you just be more like your older brother? No, mom, I can't. He's God. I mean, I, no, I just... I, I can't walk on water. I can't turn water into wine. I can't do those things. I don't have that ability. I just wish you were a little bit more like your older brother because we know hey, he was human, but he didn't sin. So anytime James lost his temper, James was impatient or rude or James was selfish or any of these things, mom could always just say, James, come on now, step it up, follow in your brother's footsteps so what would you think if you had an older brother like Jesus? I would wager to bet James didn't like Jesus a whole lot. I mean, who would? The perfect older brother. You can't live up to him. You, you can't do what he can do. You can't, you know, he's the guy that stays behind and teaches the teachers in the temple about things the teachers are supposed to be teaching. He's the smartest kid ever, and that's Jesus. And so, still human, but Jesus was Jesus. You, you can't be Jesus. But James knew Jesus. James knew, if he were in this world, whether Jesus would squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom or the top. Right? Like, how many of you squeeze toothpaste from the bottom? There are a few saints among us. How many of you just grab the tube and squeeze? You, just, you, don't, even know how much, you don't even know how much toothpaste is left in the tube when you do that. You just you squeeze it all down to the bottom. It just looks all... I, anyway, I'm praying for you guys. You're going to... I mean, how many of you like for your food to touch? You know, like my brother will put all of his food on a plate and stir it all together and then eat it. Anybody in the room that are unredeemed, unregenerate, I'm just kidding. You, you stir it all up. I, you can't taste it. I don't know why you get different food to begin with if you're going to stir it all up. I mean, it, it, it's that way at the end of the day, but it's not supposed to be at the beginning. I mean, I'm, I'm one of those guys that likes to savor every flavor of all the food, so don't let it touch. I'm probably a little bit weird because I really don't like for it to touch unless it's like rice and gravy that goes together. But then it better not touch the green beans or the meat or whatever else is on the side, right? And so I like those plates that have the dividers in them. Have you seen those paper plates? I like that better than fine china. You just give me a plate with dividers and let me stack it up where it never touches and I'm happy. Anybody weird like me in the room and you don't like your food to touch? All right, we admit it. There, there are some of us in the room that like salt. Anybody like salt? Salt of the earth, we're biblical, that's it, we're just godly people, right? And so, I, but I really like salt. I mean, like, I eat salt on everything. I eat salt on pizza, I eat salt on watermelon, I eat salt on apples. Have you ever eaten salt on apples? It's like sweet and salty all together. It's just godly, it's a heavenly thing. But salt, everywhere. How many of you don't eat salt at all? Not because your doctor tells you not to, but just because you don't like it, right? There's very few of you, which is, I'm in good company, I like this group, all right. 
And so all of those things that we would know about brothers or we would know about close friends, James knew about Jesus. So if your older brother came in one day and said to you, hey, I'm God, what would you say to him? Dude, what have you been smoking? That's some really good stuff, huh? I mean, you know, what would you say to him? All right, did you fall down and hit your head? We all know you're not the brightest crayon in the box, but this is crazy, right? I mean, even though your older brother may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, he's not going to come in and tell you he's God. And if he did, would you believe him? Why not? You see all of his mess, right? You know he's not. James didn't believe that Jesus was God. So if you're in the room right now, and you're a skeptic, and you say, I'm not sure about this whole Jesus thing, i got an eyewitness for you. But let me show you this eyewitness's trajectory over the course of his life. In Mark 3.21, when his family heard about what Jesus was doing, this is what the text says to us. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, quote, he is out of his mind, end quote, talking about Jesus. So you think your older brother comes home, says he's God, you think he's out of his mind, so did they. Jesus goes out and starts talking about being God. The family goes out on a family intervention. We're going to go get you, Jesus, you're crazy, you're out of your mind, come home, we need to get you some help. You need to be committed, right? His brothers didn't like it. John chapter 7, verses 2 through 5 says this, it says, now the... Jews' feast of the booths was at hand, so his brother said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples may see all the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And what they're really saying there is if you think you're Jesus, go to the big city and prove it. Take your show to Vegas and see if it'll play there. And if you can prove it there, then maybe we will actually believe in you. And there may be some of you in the room right now, you may not want to admit it, but in your heart, you're skeptical. You're wondering, is this Jesus really who he said he was? Is he really God? Did he really die on the cross? Did he really get up three days later? Should I really believe all of this? I mean, I've never seen anybody do all that type stuff. I want to see it. And his brothers were skeptical towards that end. Even when it came to the cross. When it comes to the cross, you'll remember that the Gospel of John records in chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, an exchange that happens when Jesus is on the cross. He looks down at his mother, and he looks down at the beloved disciple. The beloved disciple in the Gospel of John refers back to the writer, the author, John. And he says to him, Woman, behold your son, talking about John. And then he said to John, Behold your mother. And from that hour, John took took her into his home. Had Jesus' brothers been at the cross at that point, I think Jesus would have looked to his brothers and he would have said to his brother, James, take care of mom. But I I don't think the brothers were even there. And so he tells John to take care of mom. So James, the half brother of Jesus, didn't believe he was God, wanted to do an intervention and have him committed, told him to go to take his road on the show, uh, show on the road to the big city. And then didn't even show up for his crucifixion. Didn't even be there to support mom while Jesus was going to die on the cross. So what happened? Because this book in the New Testament is written by James. James, who we also know from reading the book of Acts, was at the Jerusalem council and was the guy that 
that spoke the peace language of all of the, the things that were happening. When he spoke, everybody listened. James, that we know from Josephus, one of the historians that talks about James's death, that, that when they came to James and James, they told him, they said, we need to take you up on the temple. You need to repent. You need to recant. You need to say, Jesus is not Lord. They took him up to the top of the temple and they get up there and they ask him these questions and they say, James, who do you think Jesus is? And he professes that Jesus is Lord and they throw him down from the top of the temple. And he lands on the ground according to Josephus and when he's there his body is broken his body's messed up but he's not dead yet and at that point he begins praying and according to Josephus he prays these words father forgive them for they know not what they do remember those words how did he know about those words he prays those words and they take a club and they begin to beat him until he's dead martyred for his faith James the person they call James the just because of all that he did to live for Christ, the person that they called camel knees, because it was said about James that he was such a man of prayer that he was on his knees so often that you know how camel knees, because of the way they bend down on their knees, they're spread out and they're a little bit wider. They called James camel knees because of the amount of time that James spent in prayer. So what happened to take James from the half-brother of Jesus, the eldest of all of his other brothers who didn't believe in Jesus, who was skeptical of Jesus, to James the one who would die and be thrown off the top of the temple, James the just, James camel knees, the one who was martyred for his faith in Christ. What's the difference? The difference is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're not going to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you'll remember the wording as Paul says, I deliver to you that was delivered to me of first importance, that which is the most important thing, that which should be delivered to you first, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and then on the third day he was raised according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to the 500, he appeared to the disciples, he appeared to me as one out of time, and then in verse 7 there, there's, there's additional wording where he says, and he appeared to James, and he specifically points out that he appeared to James. The difference between the skeptical James and the James who was the leader of the Jerusalem church is he encountered a resurrected Christ. And if you're in this room and you're skeptical, and you're in this room and you're not sure, and you're in this room and you have doubts, I'm here to tell you the difference between having doubts and being steadfast in your faith, being single-minded and pursuing Christ, is to have an encounter with the resurrected Christ. If you're not sure... If you're wavering, if you're blown to and fro, if you're like the waves of the ocean that go all over the place, and that's where you are, you need to ask yourself the question, have I ever truly, really encountered the resurrected Christ? Because once you encounter the resurrected Christ, and you truly repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you lay it down in humility and say, I'm living for His team. I am reunited. I am reconciled to my Creator. Once you have done that, there's a spirit that lives within you that cries out with your spirit and testifies that He is your Heavenly Father, and your life is different. And you may not know the exact time that you accepted Christ, but I don't remember the exact time I was born, but I know I'm alive. And so whether you remember the exact moment or not, you shouldn't be doubting all the time. Am I a believer or am I not a believer? If you have those doubts, then today is the day for you to settle those doubts. Today's the day to talk to somebody. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised home. You're not promised Sunday or the next Sunday or additional opportunities. It's now time for you to settle it and encounter a resurrected Christ, James. James. 
How does he introduce himself? I'm James, the oldest half-brother of the creator of the universe. Trump card played. Drop the mic, walk off the stage. You have brothers, so do I. Your brother's good at basketball. Your brother's good at football. My brother creates the world in six days. Trump card, done. My mother, yeah, she's the mother of God. She's pretty cool. Yeah, what do I do? I'm the pastor of the first church, period. The first church in Jerusalem. It's the only church at the moment, but the first church, that's why I'm the pastor, right? I'm the guy that solved all of the disagreements in Acts when they had the Jerusalem council. That was me. Is that what he says? Now, sometimes I would submit to you, we get pretty prideful and pretty arrogant in who we are. I, I'm Mr. Big Shot. Let me tell you about myself. I think there's a lesson here for all of us in the way James introduces himself. Who are we? James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word servant here is not just any word for servant. It's the word bondservant. What does the word bondservant mean? It means I'm a slave. I'm a doulos. I am a slave to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, there, if you're young in your faith or if you don't believe in Jesus, there might be something that reacts up in you and says, I don't, I'm not going to be a slave. I'm not going to be anybody's slave. That's our own pride. Because the longer that I've been a Christian, the longer that I've been a believer, the more I have affection just to say, I'm a slave of God, of Jesus Christ. I'm a servant. I do whatever God tells me, whenever God wants me, and that's the best thing I can do because he has all this infinite wisdom, and I've got this little pea brain to figure out what I may think is intelligent, but he sees it all, and he knows the future, and all I need to do is trust God. Put my faith and trust in him because you can trust him. James, servant. So what happens? He's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Dispersed all over. Greetings. Two, count it, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Now, it says when. It doesn't say if. So again, just like your inner temptation of the flesh, you're going to encounter trials throughout life. It's what happens. He says count it all joy. So there's a term there of counting, which is it's a financial term meaning to evaluate. How do we evaluate our life and our joys and our trials? Well, if we're evaluating this life based on wanting the best life now, if we're evaluating this life wanting a prosperity type theology, if we're evaluating Christianity based on the fact that Jesus is like an added feature to a new car, I get heated seats. Or I get extra lumbar support. That's what Jesus is for my life. Jesus is my genie in a bottle that I can rub and make a wish whenever I get in big trouble. And Lord, if you get me out of this, then I will make a bunch of promises that I'm not going to keep. But if you think that's Jesus, then, then you're thinking about the wrong Jesus. It says here, count it all joy when you suffer. All of the disciples, except John, died a martyr's death. And John was exiled on the island of Patmos so he could write the book of Revelation. And so Jesus is all Jesus is what makes it worth it. If you have Jesus, everything is then okay. It's not that you want a great life and you think Jesus is going to make that great life better. It's when you come to realize that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is what it's really all about, and that I'm not living my life for this life, for these 60, 70, 80, 
vaporous years. I'm living my life for eternity and for what matters. I am not a citizen of this world. I am a citizen of heaven, and I am a pilgrim passing through this earth because my home is in glory with Jesus for all eternity. And if they kill me, all they can do is take away my body, and all that does is unite me to my Savior even quicker. And so anything that happens to me in this life doesn't really matter because this life is not all there is. It's an eternal perspective that allows you to count suffering in this life joy because you're following a Savior that has already humbled himself to suffer for us. Count it all joy. Now, joy, pure joy, doesn't mean we seek out trials so we can talk about how much we suffer. That's just foolishness. It doesn't mean we try to add up the number of sufferings so that we can be prideful or arrogant in the sufferings that we take. But it means that because we have an eternal perspective, there's a peace that we experience sufferings in different ways than other people who don't believe in Jesus. When we undergo cancer, we undergo it in different ways because the end is not about this body. When we lose loved ones who are believers in Christ, we mourn. We cry, but we cry because they're not with us. It's not because they don't exist anymore. We will see them again one day in heaven. And so we suffer, but not as those without hope. We have trials that hit us in those life, and sometimes those trials are opportunities to display the gospel in ways that a watching world would not understand otherwise. So the next time you have a trial, or the last time you had a trial, do you think about the trials that are coming upon you as an opportunity to display the gospel to those around you? Or do you think about trials that come upon you in a way to say, God, why are you allowing bad things to happen to good people? Do we have the mindset that says God is in control and whatever he's allowing, whatever is happening, he has a purpose in it. I need to seek his purpose. I need to live life in such a way so that I'm giving glory and reflecting glory back to him. And so I'm going to live my life in a way that exalts the gospel. The gospel is my hope. Not this body, not this life, not my possessions, not a title, not fame. It's the gospel. It's all about Jesus. And if they talk bad about us, okay. And if they call us names, okay. And if they come after us to kill us, okay. The only regret we should have is that we just have one life to lay down for our Lord who laid down his life for our sakes to reconcile us to our Creator. He says here, when you meet trials of various kinds, they will be different. And then it says for you know, at least we should know, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's, it's like that acorn in that tree, which can happen with temptation, but it also can happen with faith. That acorn of faith that you plant in the ground, and you live, and you walk with God, and you begin to know God, and it grows up into a sapling, and you continue to nourish that faith. You continue to learn more about God. You continue to, to be involved in your church, to get involved with other brothers. You continue to grow in Christ, and that faith then grows into an oak, so that when the winds and the storms of life come, they might break a branch off, but they don't destroy the entire tree. The tree stands firm because you have faith. And that testing of the faith produces steadfastness. I can't help but think back to two-a-day football practices in August. I grew up in South Carolina. It was hot. And in August, we would have two-a-day football practices, and there was always at least one practice where the coach decided the team was a little too large and needed to be reduced. So he would run us till people threw up. 
and you know, sorry, talk about throw up right before lunch, but he would do that. He would run us till somebody threw up. We all knew this was the drill. He had a reputation for this. And we asked him one day, Coach, why do you do that? I mean, you, you know there are some of us that we're not going to quit. We're not, we're not going to walk off. You're just punishing us. And you look like you enjoy it. And he said this. He said, I need to make sure that the guys on the field are not going to quit on me when it's the fourth quarter and there's one minute left and the battle is thick. So what happened at two-a-day practices in August weren't really about August. It was about the fourth quarter of a major game to find out who was going to be there when the going got tough. And what James is saying to us is that the testing of our faith should be the opportunity for us to exercise that faith to realize we can make it through those tough times. With brothers around us through the power of the Holy Spirit, living a life saturated in the Word, we can make it through those trials so that then our faith grows stronger. And as our faith grows stronger, we can meet the next trial. And our faith grows stronger, and we can meet the next trial. And next thing you know, we're taking our joy in Christ. Christ is what we see. That's where our focus is set. And then when the things of this life happens, we're not blown to and fro. It doesn't shake us like it used to shake us because we're firm and mature in our faith. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. I would say to you here, you don't understand what to do, you don't know what's going on, ask God. Is your first inclination, when you don't know and don't understand, to go to God or to go to somebody else? I live on a college campus. I talk to a lot of students that their first inclination is to come ask for guidance. And my first response when they come say, I need your advice on this, is have you asked God about it yet? Well, no. I thought I'd come talk to you. Well, I'm not going to be here in four years from now. You're going to be somewhere else. You go talk to God first, and then you come back and talk to me about what God said to you. Usually, they don't ever come back and talk to me. It's not that I don't want to help them. It's I don't want them to be dependent on anybody other than God for how they're going to get advice and live in their life because one day they're not going to be on that college campus in that greenhouse of growth. They need to learn to walk with God and ask God, is your first inclination when you need wisdom, when you don't know what to do, when you're struggling to go to God, or is it to go to somebody else? It should be that our first inclination is to go to God. We know about God through His Word. There are some things we don't need to ask about. He's already told us about it. When we need guidance, we pursue God. We pursue God first. You need wisdom? Ask. What does the text tell us here? You ask God. You don't ask the world for wisdom. You don't do a popularity poll. You don't put out some opinion poll to see what everybody else thinks. You don't go to Facebook. You don't go to Twitter to find out what's right in the world because those are the worst possible places you can go to find out what's right in the world. You go to God. You go to His Word. You ask God. It says, God who gives generously. Aren't you thankful that God is a generous giver and will give you wisdom generously? And he gives it to all. Well, God's not going to give me wisdom. You don't know what I've done. I don't know what you've done. But this text says he gives it to all. So if you say he's not going to give it to you when you ask for it, then you're contradicting the text of Scripture. And I believe Scripture before I believe you. So if you need wisdom, ask God. God said he's going to give it. He's not just going to give it. He's going to give it generously. And he's going to give it to all. Without reproach. And aren't you thankful he does this? When we go ask for something, it's not like when we ask somebody and they look at you and they go, you don't know the answer to that question? That's easy. And then you feel really dumb, right? Why does I ask you anyway? Of course I know the answer. Don't tell me. I'll look it up on Google or something. I mean, you don't, you don't feel dumb. He does it without reproach. It actually brings joy for God to be able to grant his children wisdom generously to all. And it says, and it will be given. But here's the catch. But ask in faith. 
with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Gives us two words here to describe this picture of the way of the sea. It's driven and it's tossed. The winds that would blow east to west would drive the water in a certain direction. and They drive it up onto the shore. It would create a wave. That wind is just pushing it all around in different areas. And then it says it's tossed, that tossing where it comes up and it, it, it ripples over and it forms those white caps that you see in the ocean. And when you look out at the ocean, the ocean is the picture of unsteadiness. When you try to get up on a surfboard, it is unsteady. It is not stable. When you stand up on something, skis or, or a wakeboard or something, in the water. It is unsteady. It is not stable. You can't walk on water. There's an unsteadiness that takes place. And that's the image of somebody that hasn't decided in their soul, I'm firmly committed living for Jesus. That's my way. That's where I'm going. That's the team I'm playing on. The decision is made. I'm burning the bridges behind me. My ship has landed at shore. Burn the ship. There is no going back to what I used to be. I'm going to live for Jesus and I'm going to be steady. You can't be the unstable person and live for Christ. Look at what it says here. For that person, the unstable, tossed to and fro, all of culture, all of trials, all of the things that happen, push them around. For that person must not suppose that he's going to receive anything from the Lord. For he is a double-minded man. The actual original language, it is double-souled. It's a person who's trying to have the best of both worlds. It's a person who's trying to say, I'm living in the world because I want what the world offers, and I'm living for Christ because I want what Christ offers because these people at the church seem pretty happy. It's a person that's pulled both ways, which is a person that's not committed to either way. You can't live for Christ and hold on to the world. You've got to say, I repent. I'm turning from those things which are behind me. I'm moving forward to live for Christ. He has my allegiance. I'm not a traitor to the king of the universe. I'm a loyal subject, a loyal servant to King Jesus from this point forward. So this unstable person is like somebody that you've seen that goes up to a boat at the edge of water and they've never been on a boat before. You probably have all seen it. They stand on the edge of the dock and they take that foot and they begin to put that foot onto the boat. And and they don't know that they can trust the boat for whatever reason. So they put a little pressure on the boat. When you put a little pressure on the boat, what happens? The boat pushes down in the water and begins to rock a little bit. Well, that just makes them more nervous. And so there's one foot on the boat and there's one foot on the dock and they stand there trying to decide what way am I going to go and what happens to the person who stands there long enough trying to decide what way to go. They fall in the water. They're done. They're they're not going to make it either way. They don't stay on the dock. They don't jump in the boat. They're just caught in limbo between the two. And the text is telling us you can't be that unstable person. In fact, what the text is saying to us is that we have to set ourselves on Christ. If you look at sailors... It doesn't really matter which way the wind's blowing. It's the way they set their sails so that they use that wind to propel them in the direction that they want to go. And what we have to do is we have to set ourselves and set our mindset so on Jesus Christ that we are bound and determined that whatever the wind blows, however it comes at us, we're going in that direction. Our mind is laser focused on pursuing Jesus. That's what we're to do. We cannot be a double-minded person, unstable in all of our ways. You think back to Joshua chapter 24. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the commitment you have to have. You think back to 1 Kings chapter 18. Are you going to serve Baal or are you going to serve God? 
If Baal is God, serve him. If God is God, then serve him. But make up your mind. Serve one or the other. If you're going to withstand the trials of life, you can't be double-minded or double-souled. You have to be firmly convinced in the direction you're going to head. If you're in this room and you are double-minded and you're not sure which way you want to go, I would encourage you to consider the testimony of the eyewitness, James, the half-brother of Jesus, the once skeptic, later a martyr, because he encountered the resurrected Christ. You look at Jesus' words in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's not love the Lord your God with part of your heart or whatever you have left over after you get through doing whatever else you want to do. It's not your secondary leftovers. It's your first allegiance. And if Jesus Christ is not your first allegiance, I question whether you were saved at all. If Jesus Christ is not your first allegiance, then have you truly repented? Repentance means to turn from. So I'm living for myself. I'm the king of my own throne. And I repent. And I say, no, I understand that's not right. I have a sin nature. I need Jesus. I repent and I turn from that. And then I'm going to put my faith and trust in Jesus and I'm going to follow him. If I'm following Jesus and he's not my only allegiance, then how can you be saved and be double-souled? So if that's you, I challenge you. Examine your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to confirm in your life. Are you saved or are you not? Here the text tells us. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the rich in his humiliation. And it reminds us what comes back up in chapter 4. Because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls its beauty perishes, so also the rich man. It doesn't matter how much you have in this life, you're going to fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And verse 12 tells us, Blessed is the man who does what? Endures, perseveres, remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. So where do I leave you with? As we think about time to go home, I challenge you to consider your own mortality and make sure that you are a follower of Christ. I challenge you to be wise. Be a spiritual chess player, not a spiritual checkers player. Look, moves ahead. Recognize the temptation that will come from your flesh. Recognize how you're going to be enticed and lured by your own desires and defeat those desires through the power of the Holy Spirit because of His Word saturating our lives so that we can live in community with other brothers and sisters as a band moving forward to take our spiritual hills in front of us. And have your mind set solely focused on Jesus Christ. Not double-souled, not double-minded, not unstable in all your ways, but a firmly planted oak with your eyes straight ahead on Jesus. Will it be easy? No. Will you have temptations where you will fall and you will stumble? Absolutely. Will you encounter trials in this life that will make it hard and make it difficult? And will there be moments where you may question, moments where you may wonder? Absolutely, you will encounter those. 
Salvation is not a genie in a bottle. It's not an added feature to a new car. It's not a prosperity theology. Salvation is this. It's recognizing who we are as sinners in rebellion against our Creator and recognizing who Jesus is as the one who died on the cross to redeem us of our sins and the only one worthy of our allegiance. And I'm here to tell you this morning from personal testimony that if you don't understand, if you don't know, if you don't have peace, then Jesus is the only one that can bring satisfaction. Jesus is the only one that can bring true identity because your true identity identity in this life, who you are in this life, is you are either in Christ or you are not in Christ. Who you are for all eternity is that you are either in Christ, identified with Jesus Christ, and you're going to live with Him forever, or you are rejecting Jesus Christ, and you're going to live forever separated from Him. There is no other identity. Nothing else that you do defines who you are as much as who you are in Christ or not in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you can have peace. You can have satisfaction. You can take on the trial of life. You can overcome the temptations that hold us back. You cannot have to fear about what happens the next moment or when you die or what happens because Jesus brings that peace, that identity, that satisfaction to us because Jesus is what we're missing. It's what we were created to do is to worship God Almighty. He created us in that way to have a relationship with Him. And I urge you, I challenge you today, right here, this morning at this camp to say, I'm going to live for Jesus and there's no looking back. I'm going to be steadfast, single-minded in my focus. I'm going to live for him, whatever that means and whatever it takes. Are you willing to make that type commitment today? Not double-souled, not looking for the easy street, but looking to be a real man with a backbone that says, here I stand. I'll do no other. On the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever it costs me, I'm not going to turn back. I'm not going to have a fear of man because my Jesus is worth it. The God that created you, gave you your gifts, died on a cross to redeem you. He got up out of the grave. He took care of our sin problem by paying the penalty. He took care of our death problem by conquering death. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and he sat down. Because you sit down when the work's done. There's nothing you can add to what he's done. And the Bible tells us that one day he's coming again. And when he comes again, he's coming again not as a baby in a manger, but as a triumphant king. And when he comes again, he's coming riding on his white horse, and he's going to take care of all of the evil of the world, and he's going to recreate this world the way it was intended to be created. And so you can stand up in arrogant pridefulness and say, I'm planning my life without God, and you can be crushed when the God of the universe comes back and displays His full glory. Or you can repent now and fall on your knees now and cry out to God and say, God, I want you to be my king. I want my allegiance to be with you and I humble myself and repent before you. Or you can be that Philippians 2 person that one day every knee will bow whether it wants to or not and every tongue will confess whether it wants to or not that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question is not if you're going to confess Him as Lord. The question is are you going to confess Him now so that you are in Christ and live forever in all eternity? Or are you not going to do do it now and you're going to do it later, separated from Christ, to live forever in a hell that he created for the devil and his angels. That's your choice. Maybe you're here and you are a follower of Christ, but you, you just haven't firmly rooted yourself and you are that person that has one foot on the boat and one foot on the dock 
and you are as unstable as you can possibly be. This morning, will you commit? Will you say, I, I'm going to live my life for Jesus? I'm going to read my Bible so that I understand more about God. I'm going to be involved in church. I'm going to have a community of believers around me. I'm going to have some people I do life with. I'm going to follow him and do the things that he says I need to do, repenting of my sins, living my life for Jesus. I'm not going to worry about what the world says or what the world wants because my allegiance is with the one true king. Would you make that commitment right here, right now? You can only be saved in Christ alone. You can only live a life that is steadfast in this world in Christ alone. Will you put your faith and your trust in Christ alone? We're going to have the band come up in just a minute. I'm going to pray. If you need to talk to somebody, I'm not going to ask you to come down front. I'm just going to ask you to step to the back. There'll be somebody that'll meet you at the back. They'll be glad to talk with you. You're going to head home. I encourage you, if you have somebody that's close to you, tell them about decisions you may have made while you've been here. Tomorrow at church, tell your brothers, tell those who are walking through community with you. If you've made a decision, don't hold it to yourself. Share it with somebody else. You say, why do I need to share it? Well, Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, then I will be ashamed of you before my Father. We can't live with reckless abandon for King Jesus and be ashamed to tell somebody else that we just made him our Lord. You can't do that. And so you're putting footsteps of faith to an inward decision. You're putting outward action to something that solidifies it. So it's important that you tell somebody. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for these churches and these men who are gathered here together. And God, I pray that even now, if there's someone who needs to repent and put their faith and trust in you, that you would draw them through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. Father, for those who may be here and may be double-minded, who may be unstable, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would make the firm commitment to live their life for you. Lord, I pray that in all of our lives you would help us to resist the temptation that entices us and lures us that we may live a life that holds forth the gospel. Lord, help this not just to be a weekend where we came and we had thoughts, but help us to put those thoughts into actions to make changes in our lives as we need to so that, Lord, we will live for you, that we will be faithful servants for you. And, Lord, may you be lifted up and may you be glorified in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name.